good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Juan Roses, and I am the head of the Department of Economic History at LSE. I am delighted to welcome all of you here on behalf of the LSE and on behalf of my department. It's for me a great pleasure to welcome and introduce my colleague and friend, Chris Mintz, professor of the Department of Economic History of LSE. Uh, I will speak a bit about Chris. Chris is Canadian, and he's not the only Canadian of the department, and he's something special. He, make, he studied his bachelor at Queen's University, his master at the University of Alberta, and his PhD at the University of Essex in 2001. And his supervisor is Tim Hutton, the people in economic history, everybody knows Tim. Uh, Chris has worked in many topics, and he's in the school from, from September 2006. He mainly works in economic history of labor markets and has produced research in regulations. He has a very important paper with Michael Huberman. He has produced a lot of research in human capital formation. He has papers with Patrick Wallace of the department on apprenticeship, on guilds and so on, and obviously on migrations because he will speak about migration. And today his talk is about do the migration of the past have lessons for today? Uh, the director, Minus Hasei, remember to everybody that the Twitter hashtag for this event is hash LSC migration, and I would like to remind that the event is being recorded, take care, because it is still low, and hopefully a podcast, will, if the things work, will be available online. Okay? I would like to Chris to speak no more than 25, 45 minutes. It's too much for a Canadian, I know, I cannot survive more. And, and later we will have a question for 20, another 45 minutes. We'll see how it goes. But, uh, no. And the stewards will look at the audience, and we expect to finish by 8 p.m. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. So, uh, thank you, Joan, for the great introduction. <clears throat> it's really a privilege and a pleasure to do this lecture. Um, if you'd asked me 25 years ago, would I ever visit the LSE? No. <laughs> when I was doing my PhD, would I ever get a job at the LSE? No way. When I was hired, would I ever become a professor at the LSE? Not a chance. So I feel incredibly fortunate, lucky, and so for that reason, I want to start a little bit by saying how I got here and that some people who helped me become what I am. Not too much like an Oscar speech, okay? But just <laughs> a little bit. And I, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, and I'm definitely no exception. And I want to mention three giants who cannot be here because they're no longer with us, and why they're important to me to start. So first off, Frank Lewis, who is a professor at Queen's University, who died in the spring who taught me uh, third-year microeconomic theory. So we spent a lot of time um, sweating over compensating versus equivalent variation, cost functions versus profit functions, all that kind of stuff. But Frank's an economic historian, right? So he actually would intersperse the math, the calculus, with why this matters from historical examples. The other reason Frank was important is after the first ever conference I went to, I was back in Colchester when I was studying with Tim Hatton, and I got a letter from Frank. He had been sitting on a train thinking about my paper. And he wrote three pages about what he thought it meant, things I could think about differently, all this kind of stuff. I've never had that before or after, right? So I think that was really important. Second giant I'm standing on the shoulders of is Alan Green, who is also a professor at Queen's University. Good story for those of you in my third year class, okay? That, I took Alan's course in economic history. It was the lowest mark I got in university. Okay? <laughs> Notwithstanding that, we became co-authors, wrote two important papers together, and he 
really supported me when I was in the early phases of my career when it seems like a hopeless uphill battle to even get a job. Okay, so don't worry, the past is not, doesn't necessarily determine the present and the future. Third person, and the most important, is Mary McKinnon, who is a professor at McGill University in Montreal. When I got my PhD, I got a postdoc at McGill. I would have not have got it without Mary's intervention, help, support, and it really set me up for what followed. What I learned from Mary in particular was, you know, you get a PhD in economics, you know these fancy statistical techniques, you want to try them out. But first, before doing things you don't really understand, maybe you want to know where your data comes from, what the sources are, what can we say with the kind of evidence we have. Mary was instrumental in helping me understand how important that is and something that I say to students today when they want to do the same thing I did, wanted to do. So they're my giants, so they're not in the room today. But I also want to thank three people who are in the room today. The trio d'enfer, right? So that's Lucy, uh, Colin, and Delphine. So, you know, they have to put up with my crap every day. That's pretty important. But uh, I really particularly appreciate this given the last year or so. As many of you know, it was not personally a very good year for me. Serious illness, might not have made it. You need people to stand up for you when you literally can't stand up. And so they did that for which I'm eternally grateful, of course, and this lecture is dedicated to them. Okay. So, uh, with that aside, let's do some economic history. So, I like to start, as I like to start every seminar, almost, or every I give, whether it's to students or as a professional speaker, why should you care, right? Because the answer doesn't have to be yes, right? Of course, today the answer is yes. And there's two reasons, and I hopefully I can convince you on both. Right, because this is potentially a bit of a mixed audience. I know when I talk to people about my job, what, what do you do? I'm an economic historian. Oh, so I would hopefully convince you this is both interesting and relevant. So that brings me to the best Christmas card we've ever received <laughs> from Harry. <laughs> so hopefully by the end of my 40 minutes or so to follow, you'll be convinced if you're not already that this is not the case. Again, economic history can be about things like the stock market or money, and those can be really interesting, but it's much bigger than that. It's about understanding the quality of human existence in the past, and that can matter for the present. So it's a broad, big topic for which there's many interesting things we can learn about, which I'll tell you of some today. Also, good question, well, is it relevant? So I think some of my friends outside university think, I have this cool job, I do my, my hobby for fun, right? But you know, things in the 19th century, do we really need to know about that to understand the 21st century? That's a really good question to ask yourself all the time. So hopefully today, by looking at migration, I'm gonna to try to pick out a couple ideas, okay, where I think we can make this claim that the past can tell us something to better understand the present or perhaps the future, depending how the current situation evolves. So what I'm gonna to do today is talk about um, migration and history. And really, I've got a sort of three-point talk or two-point talk and then what follows afterwards. So I'm going to talk about migration, first of all, as sort of as a social experiment in open borders. We're going to look at the migration to the Americas in the late 19th, early 20th century. Anyone who wants to go more or less could, at least coming from Europe. So who moves? How do they do? What are the outcomes like? Okay? So we want to talk about the pros and cons of being restrictive today. Surely an open experiment in the past matters. Sort of related to this, the past also gives us big shocks, right? So we talk a lot, there's more students now in economic history at LSE, thanks to the financial crisis perhaps, but there are bigger shocks in the past, right? The Great Depression. So how does that play out in a migration context? That I think follows nicely from my first point, 
And in doing this, I'm going to kind of skip over most of the wonderful papers I've written that Joanne was mentioning before, talk about my first paper, one of my most recent publications, I'm a little bit in between, um, but I'd be happy if you want to ask me anything afterwards. When I was preparing this talk, I thought, well, I want to talk about um, migration a century ago, but also this really interesting work I did with Patrick, where we know something about mobility before industrialization. But it was kind of like, um, you know, the Big Lebowski, the film, when the dude loses his rug and you can't tie the room together. That was, I couldn't really shove it all into one lecture, but I'd be very happy to talk about other aspects of migration as we go after I've done my spiel. Okay, so open borders, why might you care? Here are sort of two books from the journalistic perspective, why there might be an interest in open borders and strong defenders of open borders. So the first book on your left is Immigrants, Your Country Needs Them by Philippe Legrand, who's a journalist, who this was the first lecture ever, public lecture I ever went to at LSE, I think in 2007. And I went to the talk and everything afterwards. It's a really nice book. The case is this. People are going to migrate anyway, so we might as well be open about it and take advantage of the many benefits of migration. It's sort of an, an inevitability of open borders arguments saying we need to adapt and deal with the situation. So that's one sort of uh, compelling book arguing for open borders from a non-academic perspective. On the right here is a more recent book by Doug Saunders, who's a journalist for the Globe and Mail in Canada, Maximum Canada, Why 35 Million Canadians Are Not Enough, Believe It or Not. So he argues essentially that tripling of the population of Canada would have all kinds of social and economic benefits. How do you get there? By having a very open migration policy. And he sort of entertains the pro and con arguments as his book proceeds. So if you read the popular press, there are defenders of open borders. If you go to more, a more of an academic setting, there are similar arguments made in favor of open borders. A really good example is this paper a few years ago by Michael Clemens, who's a, a really good migration scholar based at the Global Development Center. It's, he argues that, look, with restrictive immigration policies, we're essentially leaving trillion-dollar bills on the sidewalk, pavement, if you want, for the British context. Okay? So one of the most interesting number, set of numbers he puts in this article is essentially a comparison of what other people think would be the benefits of eliminating international barriers. So sort of a welfare game through better efficiency. So you could drop all the world's trade barriers, half a percent, eliminate complete global barriers to capital flows, maybe that's 1.1 to, to 2%. What if we eliminate all barriers to labor mobility? These back of the envelope estimates suggest that could have huge effects on the sort of average total well, or perhaps better said, total well-being of the world. Okay, so if we let people move to wherever they want to based on where wages were high or low, where supply was high or low similarly, uh, that could have massive economic benefits. Okay? So there's, an, so there's a sort of more academic case for saying why open borders could have large benefits at a global level. Okay? Global level being important. Now, of course, not everyone favors open borders, and it wasn't hard to find some fans of having more closed borders. So I don't want to talk too much about all the, one, the things these people think. But certainly, if you look at recent politics, others are much more negative about the, the experience of open borders. And to sort of set my talk up today, particularly we could think about attitudes in light of um, the integration experience of immigrants. So if immigrants move across borders, do they fit in seamlessly, right? Whether it's in terms of the labor market or at a cultural level, or are there big difficulties in having immigrants sort of adjust effectively in a place they arrive? So again, both uh, Mr. Salvini and Mr. Farage make strong arguments that that's the case, that 
assimilation, if you want to put it that way, adjustment is very difficult and slow. It perhaps never happens. And there are some serious academic reasons we might also ask the question. So this is a graph from a recent paper by George Boras, who's an academic economist who is fairly um, on the uh, conservative side on whether immigration is a good or bad thing. And this picture is showing you the wage growth over time for different generations of immigrants in the United States. Okay? So if this line is sloping up, what's telling you? That immigrant earnings are growing faster than the earnings of native-born Americans of the similar age. What does this picture show you? Well, those lines look nice and upward sloping for migrants who arrived in the 1960s or the 1970s, or certainly the last half of the 1970s, but the picture isn't so positive for more recent arrivals. Okay? And this matters for an open versus closed debate. Right? If some immigrants don't adjust, don't assimilate in sort of earnings as we're showing here, that makes the prospect of ongoing immigration considerably less attractive. Maybe these migrants, we know it's the case, came from different places than the more recent arrivals, so the policy framework is also important. Okay? So if it's a case that lots of immigrants struggle to adapt, then maybe open borders is going to be much less attractive to societies when they're presented with this as a sort of circumstance or situation. Okay. So to understand a bit about open border versus closed borders, we might want to know much more about who migrates and how they get on. And I show you some pictures from current international migration. And if we think about what's explaining these outcomes, a big part of it is two things, right? First of all, what we might call self-selection. Who chooses to move in the first place, right? Is it the case that it's the best and the apprentice who wants to migrate, and therefore when they arrive somewhere, after initial difficulties, they have positive labor market and other experiences? Okay, that would be a positive self-selection story, perhaps. Or is it the case of migration, or that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that what's important is also policy selection. So if we look at modern migration, these aren't open borders, right? There are restrictions on numbers of migrants, restrictions on skills, in some cases restrictions on from where in the globe migrants have sort of um, visa spots available in destination countries. So we can't really answer the open borders question very well looking at contemporary flows because we don't have an open border situation to examine in detail. History, though, was different, right? In the historical context, we can look at open borders. Okay, so here's my social experiment, right? So I've got some wonderful or interesting pictures from the late 19th century. So again, uh, we have mass migration from Europe to North America. So here's your classic picture of an immigrant ship uh, turning up by the Statue of Liberty. On the far left here, this is a migrant who is arriving at Ellis Island. He looks a bit nervous about the situation. If you want to know how it worked out, you can actually look at that data now. That electronically, you can look at the records excuse me, of Ellis Island arrival. So you can actually find him if you want to, potentially. And the top right here, I really like this picture, um, although it's a little bit offbeat. This is a picture of a Canadian Pacific Railway office in Veliki Bechkerek, which is in, uh, was in Serbia. Uh, the name of the city has changed, right? But the point is, um, lots of migrants came through Ellis Island and other ports into North America. Uh, transportation companies like the CPR actively recruited immigrants in faraway, medium-sized towns that you might think you haven't heard of. Okay? So this was a period that had mass migration, fairly open borders, and large numbers of migrants arriving from distant points. So here are the facts, right? Why is there mass migration in this period, just so we're all together on this? 
First of all, wages were high in the New World, and I'll show you some evidence on this point in just a minute. So if you want to move to US, Canada, Australia, perhaps to Latin America, there were advantageous economic opportunities, point one. Point two, it didn't cost that much in relative terms, so I'll show you that as well. And point three, there were few immigration restrictions, certainly going to North America for Europeans. Okay, so again, um, if you're indigent, migration was supposed to be out of bounds. If you're a known criminal or obviously ill, there were health checks at Ellison and other places, but there were no restrictions based on skill, based on nationality or anything like that, for Europeans at least, until 1917 with the literacy test into the United States, and then later in the 1920s with quotas by country of origin for both the US and Canada. So this was pretty open, right? Now I should say for Europeans, for Chinese migrants, they're excluded in the 1880s in the US with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and in Canada there's a head tax applied to all Chinese migrants from I think it's 1885. But for Europeans, this is open, right? So this is kind of the context in which we might think about what happened under open borders. So just to remind you, um, to show you some of this evidence. So here's a picture of what wages looked like in different source countries relative to the US. So what is this telling you? Well, Britain, Germany, Ireland, typical unskilled wage in the source is about half what it was in the destination. In other words, you could maybe double your income by going to the US circa 1870. You could do even better if you're migrating out of Italy. However, low wages could also be a bit of a constraint on migration, right? That could you get the resources to afford to move even if it was open, okay? So for potential migrants from these places, this is on the cards, as I'll show you in a minute, due to costs and also attractive due to the opportunities. For Italians, it's super attractive early, but the cost side perhaps materializes a bit later, as I'll show you in a minute. So there were big gains to moving west across the Atlantic and it was also not too expensive. So I give you two examples here to look at. Okay, so on the right here, I've got a picture of a uh, ticket on third class, equivalent to steerage, on a well-known transatlantic ship, the Titanic. Okay, and Olaf uh, Gunderson, I think it is, paid 12 pounds for passage. Okay, what does that work out to be? Maybe six weeks of earnings for a carpenter in Britain. Okay, so could you save six weeks, six weeks of income? Yeah, you probably could. Was the Titanic an expensive ship to, to steam across the Atlantic? The answer to that is also true. You can easily find evidence of sailings or steam, uh, steamings, I don't know what the right word is, a passage in the order of five to six pounds earlier in the 20th century. And that would be, you know, about three, four weeks of income, so not too much problem saving up the income to go. Okay, so for a British skilled or semi-skilled worker, if you want to move to North America, it wouldn't take you too long to get the capital together. Let's suppose you couldn't even do that, there was a way out. So the left-hand side here, excuse me, <clears throat> this is from the Hamburg American line, this is a prepaid ticket, okay, where uh, Jan Florek sent, uh, buys in advance a ticket for, I think it's Marcus, okay, to travel from Hamburg to McKeepsport, okay, so, uh, Marcus didn't even have the money to, to travel. His likely relative, you know, nephew, cousin, uncle, who knows, bought the ticket, sent it back to Europe. So even if you didn't, couldn't get the money together, there was ways around this problem that by in the 1870, and even more so when this ticket is issued, I think it's 1913, um, 1912, there were ways around this essential problem of, of having the money up front. So wage gaps were big, okay? Migration is affordable. What happens? There's mass migration. 
So there's two ways to look at the picture. This is, I just looked at the Department of Homeland Security, their latest statistics on, on historical migration flows. So this is the number of migrants entering the U.S. over time, okay? So kicks off around 1850. Think about the Irish famine and the flows that sends to the Americas. You see some ups and downs going with a business cycle, right? If we look at the period up to 1900, we think here there's lots of folks migrating from Germany, Ireland, the, the, the rest of Britain. These are the countries for whom there are big wage gains, but also wages are high enough you can afford the ticket. In the second stage, around here, and even more so after 1900, we start to see the so-called new migrants. So for the US, that's immigrants coming from Italy, Eastern Europe, for whom poverty would be a barrier back here, okay? But by 1900, wages are a bit higher relative to the cost of passage, so financing the move is easier to do, and those prepaid tickets really help, okay? Point to make out of this picture, look at the peaks here and sort of the levels. They look pretty high, right, compared right up to the 1990s at least. So this is large in sort of absolute terms. I think a more useful way to think of this is to sort of compare the flows by decade against their initial population. So what I've done in this figure is said, okay, what's the population of the U.S. in 1850? Take that as the um, denominator. And the numerator is the number of migrants arriving in the next 10 years. So that gives you an idea of the, of the um, size of future inflow, of inflows against the initial population. And those numbers, right, are really high if you look in the period before 1920. So as a share of population, migration's massive. So again, open borders with a huge impact on what the, of what the population in the U.S. looks like. If you were to look at Canada, similar picture, but the timing sort of shoved back a little bit. And you see similar stories for Australia and other major destinations. So I think that gives you a nice sense of the kind of stylized fact, as economists like to say, I want you to have in mind as we go forward. Okay, so big migration flows for all kinds of reasons. Now, we're going to put our thinking caps on a bit. I hope these pictures, uh, I like drawing these pictures, and I sort of had fun with this. I hope they convey something to the non-experts. If they don't, tell me afterwards, right? Uh, you can complain. Okay, so we want to think about this idea, how do immigrants get on, okay? The way economists have talked about this is what they call labor market assimilation. So not sort of assimilation in terms of culture or identity, but do immigrant earnings converge with everyone else, supposing they have an initial disadvantage? So here's uh, the way you can think about this in a couple of pictures. On the left-hand side, I've got an example of convergence. So the orange line is saying, if you take a typical sort of native-born worker, you say, what do their earnings look like in the labor market from age, from age 25 to age 35? Okay, there's a picture. Suppose that we then take an immigrant, okay, who's just got off the boat, that's how it, how it would be in 19, 1900 or whatever. They've just got off the boat, here are their initial earnings, and here's how earnings proceed over the next 10 years as they age. Let's suppose we take an immigrant who's got off the boat at age 25, right? So if earnings converge, like they do in, in picture one, we'll have this sort of profile in terms of immigrant earnings relative to native-born earnings. That should go up towards one. I should have put a one on the axis, actually. The alternative, so this is a sort of, uh, a sort of positive assimilation situation. On the right-hand side is a situation that Borjas identifies in that little picture I showed you, and also in much of his earlier work, that maybe we don't have convergence, right? Immigrant and native-born earnings rise at similar rates, and there's no actual evidence of convergence over time. And in that case, we might be more worried about the implications of having open borders. Okay, so that's the kind of way 
I'm going to show you lots of pictures that look like this. I want us to get, our, get us sort of on the same baseline before I do. So is there a convergence or not? And that can tell us about whether immigrants adjust well, and that can tell us about whether immigration is an attractive proposition, at least one aspect of it. Okay, the next problem is, well, okay, that seems like a good idea in those nice graphs I showed you, but like, how will we actually do this, right? Because ideally what we'd like to do is say, okay, we've got some immigrants we observe at one point in time and find the same people, or at least the same groups later on. In historical data, this for a long time was a major challenge, right? Uh, if you go back to what economic historians were doing when I was you know, still a 20-year-old undergraduate, uh, most people who looked at this sort of evidence had you know, labor force survey from Michigan for our, of iron workers in 1893 or carpenters in some other city in 1902. But this, is, this isn't really systematic, right? It's not doesn't have broad coverage. And also, it's only what we might call a cross-section, right? It gives you a picture of the population at one point in time. And do you, want to, do you want to make inferences about what happens over time by comparing the young and old at one point in time? So for those of you EH304 students, is my present predict your future, right? We're different cohorts, okay? So it's quite likely that that would be an inappropriate prediction. So the first way around this problem, and this is sort of, you were able to do this when I was a PhD student for the first time, is to construct what we might call synthetic cohorts. In other words, take different samples of the census of the United States or later on of Canada and find not the same people but the same groups of people over time. So take the immigrants who just arrived in 1901 and look at the same group, folks who've been in the country now 10 years in 1910, if we look at them first in 1900, and see how they get on over time. Okay? So when I was a young man writing my PhD, I did this. Uh, and also in some later work, uh, recent publication, not the last one, I have more, don't worry. Uh, with a couple co-authors in Canada. So we've done this for the US and Canada. That's one way around this problem. However, we're not looking at the same individuals over time. They're groups, right? So you might be worried, well, if you're looking at, say, migrants from Britain in 1900 and then those who've been there 10 years in 1910, isn't it the case that those who struggle go back home? Isn't that going to mess up your estimate? That could be a big problem. So what you really would want to do is try to find the same individuals over time. So these uh, authors, that's Rana Verminsky, Leah Bustana, Catherine Erickson, were able to do this uh, sort of 15 years later, thanks to even more data availability that let them actually trace individuals over time, not just groups. So I couldn't do that when I was doing my PhD. I'm kind of jealous, but, but I'll show you what I came up with and their results. We'll see how they sort of fit together. And this later paper, we did this for Canada, where you can't yet uh, apply their, their approach. Okay, so we need to try to trace groups at least, if not individuals over time, to see what the picture looks like. Okay, so uh, let me show you some pictures, right? So this is from when I was a young man, like I said, all those years ago. And uh, I, so I went back through the calculations. That was kind of fun. And, you know, I got to reminisce about lots of things. So this picture is, is that sort of bottom panel, if you will, of my assimilation picture before, right? The immigrant versus native-born line. Again, at zero, the implication is that immigrants and the native-born have the same earnings. This is a scale in log points. If you don't know what, don't worry about what that means. Think of it as percentage differences, more or less, okay? So what I found for the U.S. is between 1900 and 1910, there was assimilation, right? There was convergence, not complete, between uh, the native-born immigrants and the native-born. This is looking for those who have just arrived in 1900 and are fairly young. One important thing I should say, this is looking at occupational earnings. So this is using American census data, which is wonderful for this purpose. 
except they never asked you until 1940, what did you earn? So you've got to make some inferences based on occupation, right? Which probably means this slope is less steep, perhaps, than it would be otherwise. Although that's sort of subject to debate. So looking at, looking at the US between 1900 and 1910 suggests we do have evidence of assimilation. What if we look at some different groups? So this is the same picture, but also breaking out the so-called old Europe. So that's mainly northern and western European immigrants. And new Europe, that's going further east and further south. Italians, uh, Jews coming from Eastern Europe, and uh, other important groups. What do we see here? Well, it looks like initial disadvantages on arrival are smaller for old Europeans, if you want to put it that way, than for new Europe. But the rate of assimilation is quite rapid for the newcomers. So again, would you be worried of the sh at who the new immigrants are and that they're not going to assimilate as well as the previous immigrants did? Based on these pictures, you probably wouldn't want to draw that conclusion, right? However, as I said before, based on these pictures, you should also be really worried about um, what the role is of return migration. Maybe this line is more steeply sloped because we know that Italian migrants tend to return home in larger numbers, and we know that's the case, right? And when I was doing this when I, in 2000, I sort of scratched my chin in the academic sense when I wrote about this, but couldn't really deal with the problem. Okay? <coughs> What happened? Okay, and so I'll come back to that in a minute. If we look in the Canadian case, this is more recent research of my friends Chris and Fraser on a paper we did a few years ago. We have a similar picture, right? So the blue line is US, UK, and Ireland, where we see strong relative earnings growth over time. And this is looking at immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe, right? So similar entry points, both have positive slopes. The scale here is quite different, so it's a much larger initial disadvantage and more convergence. Why is that the case? The Canadian census asks you about your earnings, right? So we know actually what individuals were paid, not just what job they're in. So it's not surprising that we see bigger rates of assimilation. The scale is not the same as in the previous picture, okay? I, I can't really put them together for that reason. Okay, now, but this also is a problem that we're looking at the same group over time, not the same individuals. And is that gonna mess things up? So here's this really cool paper I'm jealous of by Abramitsky, Bustan, and Erickson, Ran, Leah, and Catherine, and where they actually look at a panel. Okay, so they actually trace um, the same individuals over time, thanks to having wonderful complete count census data, not just a sample like one in ten or one in twenty, but everyone, and having access to the names. And then what you do essentially is say, okay, to find the same people over time. I'll use some of their demographic information and then mostly their names to try to find the same individual. So I'll search for needles in a haystack of a few million, out of which come several thousand migrants and non-migrants I can link successfully over time. Okay? What do they find? A bit different and interesting. They find their preferred estimate, if you will, uh, which looks at everyone. Okay? They find not much evidence of assimilation. This is looking at sort of how long folks have been in the, in the U.S. over three census samples. Okay, so they don't find much assimilation, but they also don't find any initial earnings disadvantage. In fact, the opposite. If you limit their sample to urban only, and that's a bit closer to, a, to some of the earlier pictures I showed you. I can say more about that afterwards, perhaps. You do see some evidence of immigrants having lower earnings and not much assimilation. By the way, this scale is in US $2,010. Okay, so to give you an idea of what sort of penalty we're talking about. So in their preferred way of showing the results, right, not much assimilation, but not much disadvantage, okay? So that's sort of one piece of the story, right? That do immigrants get on? Well, if you do sort of the 
cohort approach, like, like I've taken, it looks like there is convergence. So you might say the immigrants who come in tend to adjust pretty well, even if they have large initial disadvantages. From the uh, competitive competing approach suggests there's not that much assimilation, but disadvantages aren't that big in the first place. And they do find, I should say, in their research, some differences between groups that are quite important. I could say more about that after. So that's uh, number one. What happens with open borders? Who migrates? How do they get on? Part two, and I'll show you how this is related to part one, I hope successfully as in a few minutes, is to think about shocks. So there's different ways we can think about shocks. Here, first two classic ones, then what I did. Okay. So in the classic ones, first of all, we can think about shocks as being a force to generating migration. Think about that picture I showed you a few slides ago of the number of migrants over time, the big bump in 1850. Surely that's got something to do with Black 47 in Ireland, right? the potato famine. And we could think similarly for refugees flows today that you get big migrant movements in response to shocks. Second kind of shock we could think about is what happens if you enter an economy when it's in recession? So this is a question that people ask for like young people. If you graduate from university when times are tough, does that affect your career for the rest of your, uh, for an extended period of time? We could ask the same question if we're thinking about migration. If you migrate and move when times are tough, is that harder than if you arrive into a buoyant economy? The other type of shock, and I ended up looking at this by accident, but I think it's really interesting, turns out, is, well, how do shocks treat immigrants differently from the rest, even if they've been there a long time? So suppose you're immigrant, obviously foreign, you've been in the Canada, US, whatever, for an extended period of time. When there's a huge labor market shock, are you disproportionately affected? There are shocks. So, I did some work on this, again, with my friends and co-authors Chris and Fraser, looking in the Canadian context. Why is that interesting? First of all, Canada has a great big depression, much worse, uh, similar to the United States, and worse than pretty much anywhere in Europe for the period late 1920s, early 1930s. So again, um, must we starve? I hope the answer was no. Right? So you know, marches and protests were common. On the right-hand side here, I've got, this is the Young Street Mission, which is still a Christian charity today, with a large queue of mostly men waiting to um, be fed. Okay? And in the middle, I've got the cover of a book I read in high school. Okay? This is Cabbage Town, which is a sort of novel based around living in down-and-out Toronto during the Depression. This probably also helped me become an economic historian. Um, one, of the, one of the challenging points in the novel is when the female protagonist decides to become a prostitute to feed her family. So we read this in English class in grade 12, and half the class thought, yeah, I'd do it too if I had to. The other half thought this was absolutely wrong under no conditions would they countenance such a thing. That led to some really good debates, so thank you, Mr. Gamble. Anyway, but the point is, Canada had a deep and serious depression, and there's surprisingly little quantitative or qualitative evidence as to how depression circumstances might or might not treat immigrants differently to everyone else. So we ended up having a look, and looking at Canadian evidence is particularly good for this. The reason is, in Canada, as I said before, the census didn't just ask you about your job, from which we can infer economic status, it asked you actually what your earnings were. So farmers, the self-employed, don't report typically, but everyone else, you get what they were paid. So if you think it's going to dent your pay, even if it doesn't dent your job title, that's something we could see. So this is a picture I showed you before, relative earnings growth, 1911 to 1921. Look at that positive assimilation. What do we roll forward to the next census, 1931? Not so positive, right? 
So the top line are British, American, and Irish migrants, folks who speak English as a first language pretty much all the time. Their experience is in the 1930s is not nearly so negative. Right? And remember, this is compared to the native-born. So in 1931, everyone's having a hard time. But if you're observably foreign, if you're from Central or Eastern Europe, right, and the, the other leading immigrant group here, you're going to have a much harder time in relative terms. So there's some evidence here that some of the gains over the previous decade get reversed as we move forward another 10 years. Why is that the case? So we spend a lot of time amongst ourselves and also with referees who read your papers trying to decide what's going on here. Okay, so we looked at a few things. Um, um, you might ask the question, is this due to return migration, right? Is it the case that before maybe those who are struggling leave, maybe here the best go back to Europe because unemployment's not so bad. There's almost, there's very little migration across the Atlantic in this period, so that's almost certainly not part of the story. One thing that does matter quite a bit, at least in terms of the levels, if not the slope, is what about controlling for employment? So the pictures I'm showing you, the solid lines, and even the dotted lines, are based on earnings, <laughs> right? Not sort of um, your weekly, on total earnings in a year, not your weekly wage. What if we control for spells of unemployment, if you will, by looking at weekly earnings? That does add, have quite a bit of, of an effect. So almost certainly, if you're observably foreign, you're more likely to lose your job in the Depression than other periods. I think that's one thing that comes out of this. The other thing we looked at, and again, this isn't sort of smoking gun evidence, but it's interesting, and we're still a little bit talking about what to make of this, is we said, well, okay, Immigrants, when they migrate, right, this is a world, I should have said this before, right? If you think about the period we're looking at or I'm telling you about, it's a world where you don't have sort of all the sort of state trappings we would today of a welfare state. What do lots of migrants do? As today, they draw heavily on social networks and contacts to sort of move up the economic ladder. So what we did then was ask, okay, if we think things like networks matter for migrants, can we try to get a sense of how much they might explain the earnings pictures I just showed you a few minutes ago. So what we asked is, okay, in our little model of earnings we use to generate those, those pictures I've shown you before, what did we say, what did we add a variable saying, what's the effect of the share of people in your location who share your place of birth, okay? What's the effect of ethnic co-residence? Now, we're only able to do this for towns above 7,500 population. It's a bit restrictive, of course. <laughs> Uh, people live in places with more or less fellow immigrants for reasons, so it's not like we're randomly dropping people into environments that are immigrant-rich and those that are immigrant-poor. So you have to think about that problem, too. Nonetheless, I think these pictures are quite interesting. So what the blue lines, what on the right, left-hand side here, this is two groups. Uh, yep. So these are U.S., U.K., and Irish migrants. Again, this group that, let's suppose, are arriving in 1911, right? And this traces out um, what's the effect of living in a town that has 3% of people who share your ethnicity on your earnings. Here we find significant positive effects in 1911. Okay? For those arriving from Central and Eastern Europe, we find a, a similar positive effect in 1921, but that effect becomes negative in 1931. In other words, having an ethnic network for those from Central and Eastern Europe helps in earnings terms in 21 but seems to not work at all in 1931. Interestingly, that's a finding that also holds if we look at migrants who have sort of a longer period of residence in Canada. So looking at those who arrived in 1891, again, 
for the UK, US, UK, and Ireland, it doesn't seem to matter, right? Both 1921 and 1931, having living with uh, an, an area with 3% who share your ethnicity, right, has a positive effect. For those from Central and Eastern Europe, we get the same flip-flopping effect, right? Even for those who have been in Canada by then quite a long time. So we found that to be really, again, it's not sort of a smoking gun because it's not like a treatment effect of living with your fellow migrants. But I find that a really interesting pattern that explains quite a bit of some of the disadvantage we see changing over time. Okay. I'm almost to the end. So can I wrap this up successfully? So here's a sort of story I want you to come away with, right? First of all, as I showed you, the New World was a magnet for millions of migrants about a century ago. Okay? So again, we want to think about an experiment with open borders from which we might learn something. This is it. Under open borders... What does the experience of immigrant adjustment look like? Up to 1920, it looks pretty good, right? Either immigrants do experience noticeable convergence with non-migrants, and it doesn't seem to vary too much by where you come from, right? Or if you take the panel approach, there isn't much of a difference to talk about in the first place. What is interesting is that some of the durability of the income gains we find in this research is more questionable. So I sort of the way I've been thinking about this fits together is sort of like a trade-off and laissez-faire policy, okay? On the one hand, open borders allow lots of migrants to go and do well for themselves for a while. On the other hand, in a laissez-faire policy environment, when the depression hits, the trap door opens, and there's not much of a net to save you, okay? So I think the experience of the past shows us the pros of openness on one side and some of the potential disadvantages of openness, if you want to call it that, on another side. Okay, so like I said now, you, I feel like I spoke a bit too quickly, but anyway, ask me anything, and thank you for listening. Um, does someone, do you chair the question? Do I do it myself? You can chair. Okay, I saw Jordan first. Why not? Okay. Um, yeah, I think this is really interesting, but if you're trying to tie this into what's going on uh, in the present, and I'll speak, oh, yeah, to, the, speak to the mic. Um, <clears throat> that's necessary. Uh, I mean, this is from the, the income assimilation uh, and your income convergence and assimilation is a lot of what you're talking about is from the migrants' perspective, right? That's true. But let's say in, when I get into debates with uh, people from Canada uh, of a certain political persuasion, often it's from the other perspective of the, or you know, from the Absolutely. nation. So yeah. there's this, you know, anecdotes that come up in the news about how immigrants across the border into Canada are embraced by the local police and, you know, this becomes a really political hot-button issue. Yep. But is there an argument, you know, either way that you can make about the native population and what open borders do, you know, historically? Yes. So, I mean, the contemporary research, and it's not exactly settled, so one way to think about it is if you have massive migration flows, right, how do they affect everyone is already there, right? So uh, the contemporary research mostly suggests that migration flows don't have a large effect on wage levels. The exception might be that there's some, I think the consensus would be there's some small negative effect towards the bottom end of the skill distribution. Now in the historical setting, this is a bit hard to sort out, although there is a paper by David Green, the son of Alan Green, published recently in the Journal of Economic History that looks at this, looks at this for Canada. And he, he finds, if I remember right, he finds similarly that there's not much of an obvious 
effect on natives. So immigrants create competition, right? It raises supply. You expect everything else equal that reduces wages, but also it works through the demand side, right? And there's spillovers due to agglomerations, larger cities, all that kind of stuff. This is what Legrand puts forward in his book in the case for open borders, right? Bigger economy, more benefits from, uh, from size and scale. Um, Max, and I'll, I'll, then I'll look up to the back, yeah. Uh, to, to the limited extent that, that the data are available, but what is your hunch? My hunch, oh boy. Uh, your, your hunch about um, the effect of different human capital endowments of those who come in, yep. and whether that would have an effect on differential convergence rates to the natives in the labor market. In other words, do highly qualified right. people converge more quickly or less quickly as opposed to the less skilled? Right. So one obvious way to think of that is to look at like language. That's the obvious skill you would look at, right? The obvious characteristic. So in the American context, I think the evidence suggests that that if you want to call it the entry effect in those pictures that I showed you, the differential at the beginning is substantially larger for those who don't speak English or those who come from source countries where that's much less likely the case than otherwise. So in, in that skill, it probably it increases the initial disadvantage, but also if you think learning English is part of what happens over time, that's also going to increase the rate of adjustment, right? So that's one skill where I think we know something about. I saw, um, okay, but you can, between the two of you, you can choose. Okay. Hi, uh, my name's Kevin Keogh. Hi, Max. Uh, Max was my, uh, one of my teachers here in the noughties and, wow, okay. Uh, so, uh, and I had the great Eddie Hunt, oh, yes. who, okay. yeah, as my teacher in British labor history, yeah. I would c take issue with you on a lot of your data, okay. or put it another way, there's a lot more data here in the LSE that could support your argument. Go on. The role of Ireland, the Irish labor that came into this country, basically unskilled. I'm sure you've read E.P. Thompson's The Making of the British Working mm -hmm. Class. And in the 60s, no LSE student was seen without it. He devotes two chapters to Ireland, the Irish uh, labor, unskilled labor that came into this country. And in fact, I'm very interested because in this country, nobody, the, no research has been done on Irish labor influence on the staple industries and certainly on construction and as we well know as economic historians to become a successful industrial country you have to have an efficient agricultural sector so that the, both labor and capital are, are transferred from the agricultural sector to the in, uh, industrial sector right. I'd certainly, I'd, I will take also issue with you on the, the effect of the depression on Canada. Okay. All primary producing countries in the world at that time experienced uh, heavier depressions than the industrial ones. So, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, I could, you, you probably know them better than I do. Um, would you like to comment on what I've just said? Uh, on the second part, um, I think that's true. Uh, if you look at the incidence of things like unemployment in Canada, it's, it's heavy in the same sort of places as industrial countries as well. So 
the Canadian unemployment experience is not just like in Latin American primary producing countries at the same time, right? So, so yeah, so that's one thing. So I think Canada is a bit more mixed than say in the southern cone, and I think the unemployment experience is also a bit more mixed in terms of the shock. On the first one, I think it'd be wonderful to work more on the Irish in Britain. Um, I haven't. So I'm not sure I can say much more than that. There is certainly more real, like... There's more data. There's more data. There, it's certainly true that things like looking at British censuses is much easier to do now than it was sort of half a generation ago in terms of digital resources to do statistical work. Um, I would need to think about more about how the, one would do that. Can I just also add that something about the Irish? In yeah. this sorry, 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 sorry. In this country, between one in four and one in five people, uh, families in this country are of Irish descent. It's not Irish, of Irish descent. That is a huge population integration. And I would argue that they integrated very easily. There was none of, like, in America, where the Irish are like, you know, they, they, put, they stand out and they say, we are the Irish working class, we're the white working class uh, of, of, uh, of America. Um, in this country, they integrated very, very easily. And they went on to become politicians, doctors, you know, academics, etc. Sounds, sounds like a great project. <laughs> Max, did you, have you noted that? <laughs> oh, sorry. I will, I, 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 he, he gently hands it over, so I'll move across after. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Um, I'm Thomas. I'm from the... Um of Latin, Latin American Studies, University of London, a visiting okay. fellow. Uh, I will ask you. I, I, I don't think you mentioned any controls because, yeah, okay. The only thing I can, the only thing I can think of, like moving, um, making convergence, is the fact that maybe uh, a capital and other, other factors are moving to the labor-intensive or unskilled labor-intensive okay. sectors. But then other shocks might have happened in the 1920s that could lead to that. I don't, I don't know much about it, but if right. you could. Well, the typical story would be something, I should have said this, the typical story would be something like this, right? That, I mean, Max asked before about skills, right? Suppose you turn up in an economy, you don't speak the language, you don't know the institutions, how to find a job, how to proceed, maybe you've got a network that helps you get started, right? That you expect if this, what we might call country-specific human capital, local matters, you'd expect to see earnings rise because migrants don't come with it, where the native-born leave school or education or whatever, and they have that already under their belt. So that would be my standard explanation for you might get to see convergence. That, that's the, the sort of development of those skills in the immigrant population. Yes? Then I'll move left. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good point. No. So that should matter for wages, but don't, I'm telling a story of relative, right, of the native-born versus migrants. So, okay. Um, yes, it's true. It makes sense that if, if there are developments that push up wages in immigrant-intensive industries relative to the others, that can matter too, right? In some of this work, I did it actually within industry and occupation to actually sort of parse out that effect, if you see what I mean. And some of the work for the United States, don't forget, it's hard to say all this in a 45-minute lecture, that the evidence is based on occupational earnings, right? Not the, what people are individually paid. So I think that also... That, move, that shoves away from some of your comments, too. But it's a, it's a good point. Now we'll go left. Sorry. 
Thank you for asking me to look up, by the way. <laughs> yes, I also want to be the first woman to ask a question. Ah, I want to say something about women I forgot, too, so please, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want to start by, I'm a fellow historian, want to start by encouraging you um, to strengthen your opening about okay. learning from the past. Of course we learn from the past. We're not learning from the future, are we? So we're learning from the past. I thought that was far too modest of you. Of course okay. we're learning from the past. Uh, then my question's picking up the theme already been mentioned about the impact of large labor flows into labor markets on the structure of wage levels and opportunities, because this is, in fact, where both historically and currently a lot of the tensions rise. Really? It's not really plausible to say large influxes of labor into a labor market don't impact on levels of wages and opportunities. And surely we need a very, very sensitive structural analysis in some skilled occupations, the impact may be much less, or new industries as opposed, say, to the declining handloom weavers or whatever. Yeah. And then also at the unskilled level, there are marked variations according to this. But this is where a lot of the, well, we won't call it prejudice, a lot of the feelings from the existing population relate to. It's not... You know, it's, it's the trend overall, the fact that others may be converging in, a, in a, an economy where wages are going down is no great consolation. So this is a really good... Look, I'm a liberal myself on these matters, but okay. this is the issue. So this is a really good question, and it comes, it comes back to my... I was asking myself, I was preparing this, about the relevance question. And what I mean by that is we do have good but mainly not historical evidence about what's the effect of large influxes on contemporary labor markets in terms of wages and outcomes. But are those good ways to understand what would happen if we completely open the door in the future? Do you see what I mean? So the, the tricky thing is to, just because so far we haven't found large effects in, in general of migration on outcomes for non-migrants, right? That's not uniform, but if you put, made a mountain of evidence it would tend to say that. That doesn't necessarily mean if we completely open borders that those predictions would be valid. So that's where the, what can you learn from what's happened so far? Can you extend it to a future scenario? I think for the question of the impact on everyone else, I'm always a bit worried that we can't necessarily draw the assumption from what we've seen so far. One thing I meant to say in my talk, but I got so excited I forgot, this is what always happens, even if you're supposedly experienced and a professor, that most of this evidence I've shown you is based on the experiences of men, okay? Couple, and so I was meant to, meant to say this during the talk, but I forgot. So a um, couple practical reasons for that. Men participate throughout their life cycle 100 years ago, whereas women typically work when they're single and then not when they're married. Um, there is interesting work on immigrant women in non-labor market con contexts like fertility and marriage. But I think um, there are some, you know, there are some interesting questions on how households might together migrate and how there might be trade-offs between do immigrant women work more early in their careers than non-migrant women and so forth. So I think there's potential to look at the female-male links within a household that hasn't been done in the historical setting, even though development economists have looked at it a bit in contemporary frameworks. Do you want to come back at me? Yeah. Only very quickly, just no. to keep the uh, female side going. Yeah. Um, but when I say we learn from the past, I don't mean that we have to say that things will replicate no, 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 themselves no, no. entirely. But how can humanity learn, except, right. well, I from the, the present, which is constantly yeah. morphing into the past, and, unless we're doing it by divine inspiration? I'll be next, less modest next time. 
Um, the gentleman, sir, three third row. I have a question about the relevance of comparing 1910 to the current. I'm, I happen to be from British Columbia, and oh, right, okay. when I was when I was younger, anybody who could operate a chainsaw could work in the forest. Where now you need a, a university education to to work in the forest. Uh, we've all seen pictures, I think, of the Lower East Side where anybody with a push cart could have a job, where, right. where the labor market is much more heavily re regulated. Um, and, and so I, I would ask you to um, speak a little bit about why a completely unregulated la uh, labor market in 1910 has relevance to the kind of labor market we have today. Good question. What I want to say in response. Um, well, as I was preparing my talk, I thought this showed two kinds of lack of regulation, both in terms of who can migrate, but then in terms of uh, what work people can do and also what sort of support systems might exist. Um, I don't, well, yeah, regulations matter. Um, unions matter, but that starts to matter quite a bit more just after the period I'm looking at, right? So that becomes much more important sort of post-1930, right? By, I mean, I think the a historical counterfactual where things are much more sort of free-flowing tells you about some sort of potential scenarios upon which then we impose constraints, whether it's who can migrate or what kind of jobs are accessible or not, right? So I'm pointing out if we remove the first set of constraints, you're making, talking about what's the importance of the second, right? Um, you might say that should, I guess, I'm going to answer the question, right? So if we have an environment where formal, let's say, let's say we have a world where formal regulations matter versus one that don't. Is it the case that in the world with formal regulations, that's going to create barriers to what I call assimilation that don't exist in the first one? So I think that's probably the best way to think about this. And I might leave it at that question, right? I, you could look at more formal settings in a historical context too, because there are sorry, sectors where formal barriers matter more. So I, I have some ideas how you might do that, but yeah, good question. Uh, Eric and then Alejandra. Yeah, just yeah. Um, yeah. I had to think about that a lot. It was hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the, the other difference today, which you mentioned, right, is that that we have a welfare state, so the the shocks might be less, might have a, a, a less of a negative effect on assimilation, yeah. right? So, you know, that's another side of the coin that would be different maybe today than, than in the past. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think at the back, Alejandra, and then I saw Mary Morgan's hand. And I'll come to Andy. Well, thank you, Chris, and congratulations for the fantastic lecture. Thank We've you. Tons of things to keep asking and discussing. But I'm, 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 I'm going to sort of uh, ask you about the lessons for yeah future. And uh, if I didn't understand, no, I mean, in terms of the model that, you know, I, I don't expect you to predict the future. You would be appointed prime minister tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but if... Um, well, thanks. If, uh, if I didn't understand uh, wrongly, uh, with the flow, 
of migrants, with the stock of, I mean, the flow of, of, of more migrants, the convergence is less assured or doesn't keep, even notwithstanding the shocks. So if this is so, why there is a case for closed borders as a consequence? And the second comment is, um, it isn't acknowledged there in your data by not considering the, f the sort of the differential in the earnings of the first cohort born in the country. Okay. Uh, because the, you know, the, this, yep. the, the decision to migrate is also not as much for the present earnings. That's a really good point. But for the future earnings of the, their children. Right. Uh, okay, on the second point, that's absolutely correct. And I didn't say anything about that. And I guess the interesting question in the research there is, what's, how strong is the correlation between migrant outcomes and the, the generation, the first generation born in the host country, if you want to call it that? And there the answer tends to be, you do see observable correlations, okay? But uh, I don't, you do see observable correlations. That said, the, if you looked at the, cor um, can I draw a picture? I like drawing pictures, right? I'm not sure everyone appreciates this, but hey, it's my lecture, right? So if you look at the correlations between um, the second generation, right, and the first generation in terms of economic attainment, okay, you do tend to find a correlation. If you draw a line and say, let's suppose you put native-born U.S. Americans or Canadians, and you also find a similar picture, a pattern on this, where do they, where, do, where are they relative to the line? They would tend to be below. What does that mean? Immigrants, you predict they would outperform the native-born given their initial conditions, even though you do see sort of persistence. So on your second comment, I haven't done research on that, but that's what other people have found, if I can put it that way. On uh, your first comment was, I, I forgot now, this. Well, if, if with the flow, yeah. uh, the uh, conversion. Yeah. Yeah. The implications of that. Okay. Why would be people making the case for closed borders if the perception of the differential earnings doesn't hold? Oh, well, it's not, it's not, okay. It's not just about that, right? It's not just about that is one answer. So, um, okay, in the historical setting, I think the story goes like this. First of all, what matters is... Um, when, when do people agitate to restrict immigration? When a recession is on, okay? So clearly the state of the labor market matters. So immigrants m compete with natives in the labor market. They may or may not have big wage effects, but we, we really start to worry about it empirically when the state of the economy is not good. So if you look at when major legislation comes to restrict immigration in the US, it tends to work against the business cycle, if you see what I mean. First, second thing we know, again, it's not my research, I'm telling you what other people have done, that exposure matters. So another thing you might know, economists like to draw inverse U curves. That's how you become famous, if you have one of these named after you. But if you look at the, and this is not my work, so it can't be named after me, unfortunately. But if you ask the question, um, um, let's say this is how, uh, if this is toleration towards migrants, and this is, uh, sorry, is that right? No. Opposition to migration, opposition to immigration, opposition. And this axis is sort of exposure. Okay. 
like in history, like U.S. states with few migrants were fairly benign attitudes. Those with lots of migrants were used to the idea. It's the in-between range that matters. And as more and more states got into this in-between range, demands for strict migration seems to have grown. So this, again, it's not my research, so I didn't talk about it in the lecture, but that's pretty interesting, right? Oh, I think it's interesting. But you wouldn't go that far to say that immigration in the, in the situation of a recession or a depression is a red herring. No, because I think people, people worry about, and people, it's not a red herring. It's not, right? That, that attitude seems to be shaped by recession. That's when people are more aware that labor supply is changing due to migration. So even if immigrants are converging, that, that's a different story to saying they're affecting the wages of everyone else. And if you're worried about that, even if it hasn't always been the case, um, I think Mary is next in my, my queue, and then Andy. Thanks, Chris. That's, inaugural lectures are difficult to do, and this is a very good one, so I really congratulate you on it. Um, I'm interested in about something which you haven't mentioned. You talked a little bit about return migration. Yeah. But you didn't talk about on migration. Now, I know oh. this, so I know both, I mean, Canada and the U.S. are big places, so if you've got that far, yeah. um, one of the responses we know uh, to failure where you first start is to move on, not yeah. to go home. So are you, is your... Do your data sets allow you to distinguish between the people who stay and converge or not converge and the people who move on? Because this not seems here. like a really kind of, the spatial aspect of that moving on could be quite important. Question? Yeah. Oh, boy. The short answer is not usually. So usually, you know, in something like a sample of the census, we know where people are born. We know where they live now. But we don't know where they were five years ago. So if someone showed up in Montreal, decided, you know what, I want to go down to Boston, and this happens between census years, we don't see them. We might know something about them. They have children who are born, or they marry. So that's one way we might get some inference on that, but that's going to be very incomplete. Um, Frank Lewis, who I had up before, uh, we used to talk about this. He has, most people don't think that it was a strategy to go to one country then move to the other. But certainly people did move across the border. And it's an open border as well, right? And you can walk across. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, when you can do this wonderful work you can now do where you link the person over time. So as I mentioned, this great paper for the US does that. And now with my co-authors in Canada, we now have access to data where we can actually link the same person over time. And one thing we're trying to do is to look at like, people who move like, across major regions over time. So there we don't see the immigrants or the native-born people who leave the country, but we see those who are in, say, Ontario in 1870 and then in Alberta in 1900 or something like that. So, but you need to link the individuals, and until recently you couldn't do that in the Canadian context. So... And even the U.S. context, it's fairly new to be able to do that as well. Um, I think, and then I'll come to Andy. Uh, so the labor market of 1930 was very different from the labor market of 1910. Yeah. And specifically, there's a lot more job attachment. And uh, when you have a labor market where there's a lot of job attachment, the burden of a recession hits on kind of marginal people, right. in this case immigrants. Put differently, if the Great Depression happened in 1910 rather than 1930, right. 
then the effects might not have been disproportionately felt by, by immigrants. And sort of taking this labor market institutions conversation forward, um, we're in another time of structural transition of labor markets, right? There's been a lot of uh, skill bias technological change. There's a gig economy. I'm wondering if you could comment on what you might speculate the implications of this are for you know, relative performance of immigrants. Sorry, I, I, I started writing down job attachment. Cause I, so could you yep. repeat the second part again? Sorry. I, so I the, the, we're um, currently in a time of uh, structural change in yep. labor markets again. So attachment is uh, declining. Attachment is declining. There's a gig economy, but at the same time, there's been a lot of skill bias, technological change. Right. And I think these might work in very different directions okay, really for, for, for immigrants. So, whew. yeah. Um, so the, if declining job attachment Okay. So just to, I've got to sort of reiterate to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm with this, right? So those, who, so by 1930, the argument is those, th those who can be easily shed are most likely to lose their jobs, and that's disproportionately immigrants. Now we have a labor market where the share who could be easily shed may be increasing. We also have a labor market that puts much, much higher premium on skills. The question is, well, how big is a cell that is both, one question is how big is a cell that is both skilled and easily shed, right? And how do immigrants fit across the, because immigrant skills are quite, like immigrants come in both the highly skilled and the quite unskilled groups. I guess the interesting question would be, are, do, do immigrants have less access to the attached skilled category, right? That would be one way to think about this. And that would be, I don't know the answer, but that seems to be the important part. If that's harder for immigrants to get into, then, then when, they're, when times are tough, they're going to lose both, they're going to lose on the skilled side, right, particularly. I'm not sure I answered that, that well, but it's actually, it's a good question that seems like I need to think about. Yeah. Um, I think there was a question, I, the, it's Sebastian? Simon, then I'll come to the front. I'm Simon. I'm an MSc student here in yeah, economic history. Class, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you talked a lot about uh, research and evidence um, in the US and Canada. I was wondering, has the literature found any substantial differences between assimilation of immigrants in Europe and in America? In, in, the, the, in like a contemporary context or in more of a historical setting? More in a historical setting. Um, that goes back to the question about the Irish we had before, which hasn't really been done. Um, Europe, Europe is a departure place, right? Not a receiving place, with the exception of Britain for some groups, right? And so no one's done, I don't think anyone's done what the kind of thing I did by like assigning, assigning income to... <laughs> Wow. No one's done the approach of let's assign incomes to occupations in the British context and, and sort of look at the Irish and those coming from Europe. Um, other places in Europe are mainly sh 
like shedding, not receiving. So I think it's a bit less compelling. In a contemporary setting, there is plenty of research on these questions in Europe, right? Looking at Germany, France, and other and Britain, among other places. Yeah. Um, in the front row. Yeah. Well, firstly, thanks for a very thought-provoking lecture. Thank you. Um, I'm Christian. I'm a former student. I just um, have a sort of, I suppose, pretty basic question. How do you control for uh, income level when you look at immigration? So take, for example, the recent financial crisis. Okay. If you were in the lowest tenth um, income in this country, yep. you did much, much worse. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably true for the lowest fourth or uh, five lowest income groups. Now, isn't that possibly the same? when you look at those immigration groups, that it wasn't the immigration. And I, I do really, you know, like the arguments about first language, second language, yeah. about network, et cetera. Yeah. But what if it was simply the fact that you were in the lowest income group when the recession hits in the Great Depression, you do worse? Okay, so one way to look at that, we didn't do that. You could say, okay, let's, like, take the population, break into cells by, like, occupation, where we know sort of, we did a bunch of work we sort of controlled for occupation to see within occupations, do we see the decline we do? The answer was yes. We didn't go and look at, like, is there a different experience for the top end occupations to the bottom end? I mean, that would be really interesting. That's, again, something that would be quite interesting to do if you could actually link the individuals, right? Because they could not just say, what type of occupation group are you in, but was I a very successful carpenter, engineer, or not? Do you see what I mean? That would that, be a nice thing to do if we can do it ever, but going forward to 1931. But yeah, that would be a really interesting way to look at that, actually. Um, I can't remember. I, don't, I see Annie, but I, I think Herbin. I'll go here, Herbin, and Annie, if that's okay. Yes, please. Thank you. My question is, uh, how about looking a little bit further back along the chain? Uh -huh. So how the migrants are doing in their uh, new country where they've now decided to set base uh, versus how, uh, uh, how they may have done in their countries of origin. Okay, uh, yep, yep. Because uh, I'm familiar with some doctors from India right. who are now deciding to go back to India because they feel that their contemporaries back in India are, are earning a lot more. Okay. So uh, just just some thoughts on something. So like that. there's a paper on that, but not by me again. So I, I didn't talk about it. So this this uh, this paper I praised by uh, Abramsky, Busan, Erickson. They have a similar piece where they actually they this is the things you can do today with wonderful new digital resources if you have the manpower and the budget, which is they um, took a complete count census for Norway, and found the individuals in America. So you can see what were they doing in Norway, what are they doing in America. You can work out like the individual premium to migration, right? That's really cool. Couldn't do that when I was doing my PhD. Although we could do things like that now with some of the evidence I am working with. So yeah, that's, that, there is some evidence on that, but not by me, so I didn't talk too much about it. Um, then Herbin, I think, and then Annie. Yeah, I think it was, was really a great lecture with this kind of thing, like let's look at a past and let's look at a case where there were open borders. Yeah. Um, and I just have as an outsider a kind of question about a general picture. So I found a case of Canada and the US very fascinating. And I just wonder what you think if this is a kind of unique case in history or whether it's comparable to cases like Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, maybe even Norway in, in, in the 
past 10 or 20 years or so, or Brazil. So just wonder, is this a kind of unique case of a very big market? Or if you would look at research orders on other countries, is it something we see across the board? Okay. Um, I'll say two things about that, one of which actually draws on some of my own research, so that's good, right? And the two of the greats I had listed before. So, um, okay. North America is mainly quite, I would say, neutral towards migrants in that it's open, but doesn't sort of actively recruit, right? With the exception of the Canadian Pacific Railroad in Serbia. Um, if you look at Latin America, it, there's much more of a, you know, we'll subsidize emigration to bring labor over. The sort of, as, in, as, in as we talked about earlier in response to the earlier questions, the sort of composition of the economy is quite different with plantations and so forth. So I think, you know, whether Buenos Aires would look like Montreal is an interesting question, but whether the broader Latin America I think might be quite different. Sort of related to this, um, one project I did work on that was really fun is we, I did this paper with Alan Green and Mary McKinnon where we looked at um, who went to the U.S. and Canada, right? Were they similar, different? Um, how do they sort themselves across the two? And we found actually, you know, much more similarity than you might expect. So again, a story where this sort of gets to Mary's comment too earlier, right? That where migrants, they sort themselves across cities in North America, the border doesn't really matter that much, right? So they move as opportunities change. That might hold for some of these other New World destinations, but I think Latin America, I think, would be a bit different due to the nature of the economy and the sort of policy that was much more recruiting-based. This is a hypothesis. This is a guess, right? If I write the paper, I'll tell you about it, but I'm not sure I'm going to. Uh, Annie. Uh, okay. Forward. This yeah, one. Uh, yeah, I didn't ex I'm not sure I explained that very so, well. So, so I'm ask. really interested in this because yeah. if you had asked me walking in here, do immigrant um, ethnic enclaves help? I would have said yes. It's like that's a kind of starter. And so here you're showing me, if I'm reading this correctly, that for Central and Eastern Europe, they don't in 31. They, they do in 21. Okay, they do when things go well, and they don't, they don't when, when things, things go, go bad. And I'm curious if you can um, just kind of unpack that a little bit more. Is that because there's more support there, so fewer people are leave? Like the people who would have emigrated out are actually staying because yeah. they're in a cultural community. Or is there some sort of threshold where um, if there's a smaller immigrant ethnic enclave, then it is kind of helping, but as these things get large, like do you see a difference in size? Right. Um, this goes back to the women in the labor market question a little bit too. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. So what I did here is we have a like regression model where there's a coefficient, and this predicts out if you're in a place with three, just to be absolutely clear before I, I try to try to answer the question, we're unpack what's the effect of 3%. That's about like 95th percentile of the distribution of, of co-ethnic size. So that was like a big, that's a, a large co-ethnic share, but not one you don't see, if you see what I mean. Okay? Okay, uh, why do they switch around? I, we found this super interesting, but also a bit hard to explain. So one thing we liked as an as a idea was that these types of places, um, having an enclave might make it easy to like break into the labor market, but may not, have such, may not have such positive effects in the longer term, right? So you don't have to adjust as much, if you see what I mean. And so whether, what's hard, what we can't say in our evidence is whether, this, whether people in these places didn't adjust earlier and now they're stuck, 
right? And don't forget, this is relative to the native born. So this is not just they're in the wrong place. It's the place they're in is particularly bad if you're, if you're, in a, if you're foreign, if you see what I mean. So I, I sort of like the story. I, I find interesting, maybe, the story that in good times it helps you, but the disadvantage of not having to adjust too much is there when, you know, only the attached keep their jobs. You never had to have a, a formal attached job, and now you're paying for it. That is quite speculative, though, with the kind of evidence we had. So we had a big uh, discussion among ourselves whether we should even do this in the paper. Anyway, um, it's a good question. And I would like to be able to unpack that more. But that's, I think, as far as I can go on current, without writing the paper which, again, which I couldn't do before this. Um, I think I saw some other hands, though. Uh, Dominic? Go ahead. Thank you very much, Chris. I enjoyed that very much. I particularly like the way you set it up as saying that economic history is a way of measuring the quality of human experience over time. That made me think that economic historians might be worth listening to. So, to, to bring you uh, sort of back to that frame of mind, yeah. I'm really keen to hear the kinds of things that you're thinking of when you talk about assimilation. Yeah. And also whether or not you have any intention of sort of mixing methods and trying to draw in migrant experience of the uh, response to wage disparity as part of your uh, sort of ex ways in which you draw a narrative out of this kind of uh, approach. So what was I, I didn't, I'm not sure I understood the first part, sorry. I'm... Uh, what did I say? You, before mixed methods, you said, you said something and. That's oh yes, could you explain more about what you, um, what's in your mind when you're talking about assimilation? Okay, so um, this is a narrow story of assimilation. It's about earnings. That's it, okay? Uh, I sometimes wonder whether you should even use the word assimilation because it draws up conjectures and ideas of other things. But as that, I, have, I, I decided to do that anyway for today. I've experimented this with teaching, whether I call it something else. So it's quite a narrow definition, okay, of what the like, adjustment might be. But you could certainly think of other things that are interesting to look at. So as I said, since, since most women aren't working in this environment. When people have looked at adjustment there, it's been things like you know, childbearing decisions, marriage, and so forth. You can look at decisions about ownership of homes. We have evidence for that. So there are other ways to think about whether people are integrated, adjusted, however you want to think about that. So there's certainly ways to do that. I've kept a, this is a very narrow way of looking at it, quite honestly. And the second, one, second question was, so, uh, do I, do I want to support my research with things that aren't number crunching? Okay, um, I'm a number cruncher, so that's me. Um, but I think, you know, um, if you read some of these really good um, research based on oral histories of immigrants, I'm thinking the name, one name that comes to mind, ugh, I've got to confuse that. It's, it's not maths. Anyway, there are very, I've, when I was doing my PhD, I read many of these, right? And, so, and certainly I've supervised students who've actually gone to talk to immigrants about their experience and what can you learn from interviews and the battle of the quotes, if you want to put it that way. So, um, I don't know. I'm not really a mixed methods person, but I'd like to think that you should see congruence between the other approaches and something that's sort of number crunching. And you know, um, sometimes you get the best ideas by reading novels and also by looking at what's not in numbers, right? And then you can, of course, test it with your data. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I think giving a bit how I think, maybe. So that might be useful. Could I just ask a supplement? Are you uh -huh. a member? 
Cleopatrician? Yeah, I think you would say so. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Guilty as charged? Is that the right answer? I don't know. Um, Paul? Uh, thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk. Um, one thing that I was wondering if anybody had kind of looked into, it doesn't really sound like something you've looked into, but I think you might be aware of somebody else, is if people have looked into kind of the relationship between economic exclusion and political exclusion. Okay. Because, I mean, it kind of makes me think about it in that particular yeah. graph up there, because you, you could definitely make the case that uh, immigrants from Ireland in the United States became substantially more politically included. So, like, for, for example, through unions, uh, I mean, they ran Tammany Hall for, like, 30 years. Yeah. Whereas this did not really happen with Eastern Europeans. Yeah. So, like, has anybody looked into, like, the, the rights of naturalization, how involved they were in politics, and if this impacted economic outcomes? Okay. Um, there is some work, which I haven't looked at in probably a decade, that looks at things like naturalization, naturalization, whether people have citizenship and whether that matters. I think those studies tend to find it matters a little bit, but I don't really remember. Maybe something more interesting to think about was <clears throat> you should be able to identify locations where immigrants have voice through the political system process, right? Sort of what you're saying. And maybe you could see, well, how experiences in those locations different to others? And does it change when you see that? Im now, of course, outcomes and immigrants having political voice, that the causality could go both ways, right? I think that's an interesting question to ask. More than just, if you put citizenship as a variable in your regression, it doesn't matter. You can do that. People have done that. But it's a bit less exciting, I would say. Um, but I think the other question, if you could unpick the causality, would be really interesting to think about. Um, I can't remember. I, I, time's almost up anyway. Are there other questions? I'm getting tired. Wait, when I can finish? Oh boy, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, can, uh, you can bring me at the end. I remember George Borges when writing the papers, he ever argued that the problem in the States is that migrants and, and natives are not living together. Okay. Uh, and there are these effect expulsion when migrants yeah. arrive, the Americans leave. Yeah. This happened in Canada in this period, and if not happened, why? Or oh. if it happened, yes. Oh, that's a good question. So, um, so the, okay. If I can step back, so the question is, how does a sort of spatial distribution matter? Yeah. Right? And this is sort of looking at the spatial distribution in some way. But what Juan is asking is, um, so you're asking, do, do, do the natives leave when immigrants come in? Yeah. Uh, they, definitely, they definitely have in the U.S. Uh, in the Canadian context, I haven't looked at that in the numbers. Um, I don't actually know in the Canadian context. I mean, certainly the stories are along those lines. Um, when I looked at this data, the sort of the variance in ethnic concentration is quite a bit smaller in Canada than the U.S. circa 1910, 1920. So I think there's less, you know, I think it is what you'd expect. So I think there's less variation in that sense. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly answering your question, though, what the, what the relationship is between the two. That's like, that would be a nice thing to work on some more. Yeah, I because, don't think... Because yeah. I think 90% of the argument of Borges is that they are not the same wages because they are not in the same place. Right. And here is a quite strong, different argument. And obviously the question is why they are not discrimination, why the Canadians don't hate the yeah, foreigners. I didn't, I didn't use that word, did I? Which is something you might want to think about. Yeah. Good question. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there's another one. Sorry. Yeah. Hi, uh, just before we leave, I'm just um, 
talking about this uh, slide again. So I'm just wondering, do you have any data um, that would answer the Central Eastern European um, uh, disjuncture about uh, the political power and, um, you know, those who are from the US and UK and the kind of jobs that they have. So those, you know, literally would have maybe more um, more success in the in those kind of uh, in those jobs um, from a European aspect to uh, UK and Ireland aspect rather than the European. Do you have any uh, data on that that could probably so answer we, that? So would it be possible to show? I, I'm kind of meld this with Andy's question a bit. Would it be possible to show that? Immigrants from some groups were better at becoming, getting attached jobs than others, yeah. and whether that materializes through uh, local. Um, I'm going to say no, but maybe we could do something about that. I mean, I'm not. Sh I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I know what novels say, but that's. I haven't really looked at this empirically. Um, that's. But that I think would be an interesting thing to look at for sure. So that's giving me some ideas for what I might do now that I'm a professor. What can I do next? Right. Okay. Got to do something. Thank you. Isaac, PM, many yeah. thanks.